Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is George Selgin, the BB&T Chair in Free Market Thought and Professor of Economics at West Virginia University. George, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks for having me, Russ. It's exciting to be on your list of esteemed speakers. Well, I'm glad to have you. Uh, I want to start by talking about the concept of free banking, which I think there are a lot of uh, preconceptions and misconceptions about. So tell us what you mean by free banking. Well, free banking means a banking without any special regulations, that is, banking conducted as it might be if governments treated banks the way they treat, oh, companies that make uh, uh, shoes or widgets or any, anything uh, that's a, a real good. The, the banking system has long been a uh, particularly heavily regulated uh, industry in, in uh, countries that are otherwise relatively uh, capitalistic and free market, and free banking theory considers what what the consequences would be if banking was not subject to so many special regulations. So, what role would there be for government in free banking? Any at all, or other than well, contracts? there might not be there might not be any special role apart from, of course, the usual enforcement of contracts as necessary for business generally to be successfully conducted. Uh, but um, if you had a commodity monetary base, as was the case historically, like a gold standard or perhaps a silver standard, in principle there need not be any particular role for the government in, in the monetary system. Uh, the banks can do everything that the government does now except except uh, contribute to crises, which is a something that uh, government agencies are particularly good at doing. Well, I think a lot of people's reaction to the idea of free banking is the idea – is the reaction that I think you often hear about other areas uh, of government intervention where they say, well, banking is just too important to be left to the private sector. Uh, what's your answer to that? Well, I don't think that's a very good argument. Uh, you could make that about so many things. Uh, lots of things are really important. Trade is important. Food is important. Agriculture. Uh, it's hard to think of uh, a major sector of the economy that's not important and that we would want to have badly mucked up. But uh, banking is is not unique in that respect. Uh, the question for it is the same as with any other section. It is whether the government's involvement makes makes it work better or not, and that's a question that needs to be taken seriously. Well. I think for many people, going back to, say, pre-1913, before the Federal Reserve, which is not a free banking era, of course, but it's an era that we think of as relatively free compared to today's, compared to the pre-19, pre-1913 era, we think of as fraught with chaos and um, bank runs and other things that the Fed, it is argued, has now figured out how to smooth, although the current situation, I think, is causing a lot of people to reexamine their prior beliefs. But historically, what is the record of, 
of free banking, if any, or is it just a um, a theory? Well, it's not, fortunately, just a theory. There actual actually have been some instances that approximated uh, the ideal of free banking, the theoretical ideal, I mean, uh, though nothing uh, that that actually achieved it in any com- absolutely complete sense. But uh, the most important thing that people have to keep in mind is that the creation of the Federal Reserve in this country and the establishment of other central banks elsewhere did not mark the beginning of government interference with banks and government regulation of monetary systems. Government interference with money and banks uh, long predates the uh, establishment of the Fed and even the establishment of some earlier central banks. And in the United States, we've had uh, uh, governments have ha, government has had a uh, a very heavy involvement in banking. It's wielded a very heavy hand. Uh, if I were to folk name just a couple of the crucial regulations before the establishment of the Fed that contributed to the chaos that you referred to, Russ, and there was some chaos, no doubt. I would pick on the lack of branch banking. Almost all banks were single office unit banks, uh, and that remained true, incidentally, for many decades after the Fed's establishment. And banks were heavily restricted in their ability to issue currency. This, of course, at a time before there was a central bank with uh, the power to issue uh, currency itself. And those two regulations alone created all kinds of trouble with the uh, pre-Fed monetary system, and I think can largely take the blame for the crises that ultimately uh, served as a rationale for the Fed's establishment. Well, let's take those two issues, the branch banking and the um, currency uh, issuance. First, when you talk about free banking, do you mean uh, that banks would also be the only suppliers of currency or merely uh, the holders of deposits uh, of, say, government money? Or do you, when you talk about free banking, then are you, what, which kind of currency are you having in mind? Well, today, of course, banks issue uh, a lot, a big chunk of uh, people's money holdings in the form of various kinds of deposits. And really, until relatively recent times, banks were the only private suppliers of any sort of money. It's true that today and in the last 30 years or so, money market funds and other agencies have gotten into the business of, of supplying uh, financial assets that, that can, at least in a, in a loose sense, be regarded as exchange media. But if, we go, if we're going back to talking about pre-Fed times, it was pretty much banks uh, uh, and, uh, and, and mints that were supplying money. And banks back then could issue many of them could issue their own circulating notes. Now, these notes, which were currency, they weren't, they weren't distinct from one another. That is, the brands issued by different banks weren't distinct in representing truly distinct, distinct underlying monies. Uh, different banks issued $1 notes and $5 notes and $10 notes with their names on them, but they were all similar claims to some underlying amount of gold, some gold coin, essentially. So there was a uniform monetary standard, but you didn't have a monopoly of the issuer in the issuance of the paper representatives of that monetary unit. You said at one point uh, that banks were stopped from issuing currency. When did that happen in the United States? 
It happened in two stages. Uh, during the <clears throat> Civil War, the state-chartered banks, which were the only kind of banks that had existed at the time of the outbreak of the war, were deprived of their right to issue notes by essentially being having been subject to a stiff tax that made note issue from, for them unprofitable. Uh, before that tax took effect, another kind of, of uh, bank was established, the national banks under federal charter, and those continued to have the right to issue their own notes that were subject to some stiff regulations themselves. In particular, they could only issue notes if they backed them more than fully in face value terms with U.S. government securities. The idea, of course, was to help finance the Civil War. It's pretty obvious that the architecture, uh, uh, the design of, this, of, this, of these reforms didn't have anything to do with improving uh, the overall long-run performance of the monetary system. In fact, um, the restriction on the national banks was such that as the government retired its debt in the post-Civil War period, uh, it became exceedingly costly for them to supply currency, so the currency supply shrank even as the country was growing very rapidly. And that was the thing that set the stage for severe currency shortages and financial crises in the last decades of the 19th century and first decades of the 20th. And then, of course, they became the argument for establishing the Fed, which, if you look at what the Fed was, it was basically, let's set up 12 banks that can issue currency when the laws would prevent uh, the national banks and state banks from doing it. There wasn't anything magic about it. It's just, if you hamstring the established banks, uh, you don't allow them to issue currency when more is needed, one way you can solve the problem is to create a new set of banks that aren't subject to the same rules. The problem was that the Fed, all, the Federal Reserve banks, because of their unique standing, could issue too much currency. <laughs> and, uh, of course, we know that they went on to do so on numerous occasions. Yeah, I have to tell uh, just a quick anecdote. When, when I used to argue with people when I was younger about, say, public versus privately owned roads, people would say to me, well... If the private sector created the roads, there'd be roads going everywhere. I mean, and I thought, you mean like we have now? Yes, that's right. And when I talk about private money, they would say, well, if there was private money, the private issuers of the money would have an incentive to inflate the currency and take advantage of the people already holding it. And I thought, yeah, just like, just like the government does. So the question is, in in a world where if all currency were in the hands of private uh, issuers rather than the current system. What would be the protection for holders of those notes from uh, inflationary pressure? Well, you see, with the private issuers, you have a market uh, constraint that's very effective. Uh, today, if a bank makes too many loans compared to its rivals, and I'm, I'm not talking about a situation where all banks can lend too much because the Fed is supplying all banks with too many reserves, but holding the available stock of bank reserves constant. No bank can go too far ahead of the rest in making loans because checks are drawn on those loans and they get redeposited and cleared. And the next thing you know, the bank that's being too generous is running out of reserves because they're being paid over to the rivals. So that puts a very strict limit on money creation in the form of deposits by individual banks today. Well, 
when banks could issue their own notes, they were subject to the exact same discipline. If a bank uh, made loans and the borrowers took them in the form of the bank's own notes and went out and spent them, the notes would be ultimately received mainly by rival banks who would send them back for redemption. And the same thing would happen as when checks are sent back today. So competition worked to constrain uh, the amount of currency of banknotes any individual bank in a competitive system could issue. That doesn't work if you give one bank a monopoly because its notes get treated like reserves by other banks, even if there's a gold standard that happens. And so it can expand with impunity. Uh, It just encourages all the other banks to expand as well. Well, let's go back to the the case where they're – that restraint you said in the private system because I, I don't quite understand it. I'm um, I'm a bank. I'm making, quote, too many loans, and I'm mm-hmm. putting out too many uh, bank notes as a result. Mm-hmm. The notes circulate, eventually get turned into my rivals mm-hmm. just because of the nature of things that sometimes it will be convenient for people to not to come back to me personally. And my rivals will then come to me, and they'll look for, I assume, say, gold That's right. in exchange. And at some point – if I've issued too many, I'm going to run out of gold. So the question is, uh, what's what protects the uh, holders of my notes from my uh, either malfeasance or negligence in running out of gold that way? Well, the point is that they will continue to accept your notes as long as they believe that you've been acting responsibly and you're only issuing an amount consistent with your long-run survival, as banks accept each other's checks uh, today under that assumption that they're not going to get shafted by the bank not having enough uh, funds uh, at the Fed for settlement. Uh, but what what will usually happen is if a bank gets a reputation for, for uh, uh, lending too aggressively, the, the clearinghouse, which could would itself be private in a free banking system, will probably catch on before anyone else. It's a kind of a banker's club, and they'll throw that bank out, and other banks will start refusing its notes, and uh, then it'll re- really be in trouble. We have historical instances where precisely this sort of thing happened. Back in Adam Smith's day, the Air Bank, one of the Scottish banks, uh, pursued an easy money policy and was issuing notes left and right, and its notes were coming into the clearing system. Well, it was, they were very quickly discredited, and other banks started refusing them, and uh, the Air Bank completely uh, <laughs> collapsed in in fairly short order, and a lot of people took a licking from it who had accounts there or held its notes, including, or or, sorry, I should say, most most of the losses were borne by the owners of shares in the bank, Uh, and Adam Smith was one of them, incidentally, uh, because uh, the bank uh, uh, failed, and they were the first who had to uh, uh, suffer the losses. So you will get individual banks failing, but it's it's generally the case that uh, the clearing system disciplines banks and keeps them from going overboard because they know exactly what they can expect in that kind of environment if they lend too generously. But going back to, say, our opening conversation about the differences between banks and, and other businesses, let's say I'm a, if I'm a car manufacturer and I end up uh, cheating on quality of the car and cutting corners and I produce a car that's it breaks a lot and it's not very effective. 
True, some people get stuck with a mediocre car, but most of the losses are borne by those stockholders because any future benefits of profit aren't going to be forthcoming. Uh, But here you're going to wipe out the savings of people. So in such a world, uh, would not people be uh, uneasy putting any significant sum of money in any one bank? And wouldn't they find it uh, profitable uh, rationally to spread their deposits across a number of banks? Or would there possibly be insurance of some kind that banks would put up as a way to insulate depositors from that that uh, risk but that's what bank that's what bank capital is for it's really actually more like the 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 case of the auto manufacturer than you suggest because the front line of defense of the banks and the the, the, the their counterpart to the deposit insurance that exists today in a free banking system is their capital so what you do is you you put your money in a bank that's got a lot of capital and as long as that capital is there the, any any losses it suffers as a result of bad loans uh, comes out of that capital. Now, if it overissues, right, uh, it's going to suffer reserve losses and a liquidity problem that uh, should constrain it very quickly. But if it makes bad loans, then its problem is going to be a lack of solvency, and that's going to come out of capital first. And then only after the capital is exhausted do the deposit uh, uh, holders and note holders, their losses. In the whole history of the Scottish banking system, the which was the freest banking system we know of, uh, it uh, until the establishment of uh, restrictions on currency issuance by banks there in 1845, the total losses suffered by holders of Scottish banknotes, including those who held air banknotes, were really quite minuscule compared to uh, losses that have been borne uh, mostly by taxpayers <laughs> as a right. result of uh, bank failures in modern times. But it was the, cap- the capital uh, uh, suppliers, the owners of the banks, who typically lost when they failed, like Adam Smith, who had a stake in the Air Bank. Because I'm thinking about the feedback loops in the case of the car example. If, if the car doesn't run well or perform as advertised or... Um you know, falls apart fairly quickly, information about the mediocrity of the product starts to spread through word of mouth. It, it's hard to see how that would work in a free banking system as I'm holding these notes. I'm not going to get any signals, am I, that things are troublesome until oh, it's yeah. too late? Oh, oh gosh, you're going to get them much faster than the for the car maker. A note is a financial asset, right? Right. And it's traded in the secondary market. Unlike individual bank accounts, for which there's no secondary market, deposit accounts, and those notes are priced by experts in the market, including other banks. The minute there's any doubt, by the market makers, of course, by the the, the, the people with know-how, about the value of a bank's uh, balance sheet, that is, about its solvency, its notes are going to go to a discount. And you will know that because you won't be able to trade them currently. You won't be able to deposit them at any other bank uh, and that is uh, th- at that point, your bank is going to have to wind up uh, wind up pretty quickly. But generally, notes stay at par, and, and it's safe to deal with them. The question everybody every everybody has to ask in a free banking system is: first of all, which of all these banks do I consider 
worthy of having my money in the first place, right? right? I bring my gold to them or whatever the basic money is. And they're going to have an incentive to do some research. They're going to want to look into the record of the bank, into its capital position. That is how big the cushion is. It's going to protect them if they have bad loans and so on. They're going to want to put at least as much effort into choosing a bank as people today put into buying a, a car, right? Uh, which today nobody puts into choosing a bank because of the deposit insurance. Then the next question they have to ask themselves is, what notes of other banks and checks uh, is my bank willing to take? Does it consider current? Right? I trust my bank. What about all those other banks? Just look at the, uh, the notes that your bank is willing to take. It regards those banks as safe. You can accept those notes as well. So in Scotland, if there were 24 banks, you pick one after your research, and then you keep yourself informed of its list of banks in good standing. Usually that'll be the same as the banks that are members of the local clearinghouse, and then you're pretty much good to go. And In effect, um, what happened, of course, is banks that weren't in good standing with most or all other banks quickly got out, weeded out of the system or couldn't get started in the first place, and that was that. So would there be fractional reserve banking in a free banking system? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and, and, uh, and big time. Uh, going back to the Scottish case again, and I'm talking here, Russ, about, say, 1820, mm-hmm. uh, which is a long time ago. You didn't have a lot of the modern uh, transaction-facilitating uh, devices and arrangements that you have today. The typical Scottish bank held gold reserves of 1% to 2%. And that was in an arrangement where everybody had the right in principle to convert uh, a Scottish bank note into so much gold. Nobody ever did it, though. (laughs) That's why the reserves were so low. Such was the faith in the uh, Scottish banks of issue that, uh, in fact, uh, if people were leery of holding any sort of money, it was gold guineas uh, themselves, if there's a great quote uh, somewhere that says the first thing anyone in Scotland would do if someone paid him a gold guinea was to get rid of it quick by depositing this pesky coin in a good Scottish bank in exchange for some of its paper. So they're holding, the banks are holding a fraction of their uh, reserves, uh, Mm -hmm. say one to two percent, which means that only one to two percent could show up at any one time and be satisfied. You're saying most of the time they didn't. But a, they hardly ever did. That's but a, right. But a bank run is when people have anxiety about the bank's ability to honor its promises. Mm-hmm. And, of course, if, by, if for whatever reason a bank lost that confidence that they could cover their costs, co- repay their, their depositors, then uh, the, the money that was rightfully the depositors, then there wouldn't be enough in the bank. And how did banks – how, how do banks in a free banking system – uh, prevent a run in that kind of situation? What recourse do they have other than to shut down? Uh, that's a really good question. So uh, we have to remember, first of all, that the 1% or 2% figure is something that evolved through trial and error, and it was what the banks found that they could safely uh, function with. Now, if, if there had been a run and the banks had no other recourse for avoiding it, but they did, in fact, and I'll mention that, what that was in a moment, then, um, yes, the banks would have to shut, shut down as soon as, as soon as they ran out of the slim gold reserve they had. However, that wouldn't necessarily mean that the 
remaining note and deposit uh, uh, holders would get nothing. The bank would then be liquidated, and it would be a question of what its assets, including and, and capital, were were worth. Uh, and uh, often there would be, after uh, some delay, a complete payout of uh, the deposit and note holders. And that's why the loss figures for Scotland overall were very modest, even though it did experience uh, individual bank failures from time to time. The recourse the Scottish banks themselves had until a law was passed that uh, prevented them from using it anymore was something called the option or optional clause that banks put on their notes. And uh, what this was, was was a clause that said, we reserve the right in certain situations to suspend payment on demand of the notes and gold, uh, but if we exercise this right, then during the period of suspension, we have to pay uh, what was then the maximum allowed rate of interest of 5% to the note holder. In other words, the note holder waiting for the, their, their payment accumulates a 5% return on the note, gets converted to a little bond. Now, it turns out that the reason banks had these option clauses on their notes until they were prevented from having them, and the only time, occasion, uh, when they ever used them was because early in the history of Scottish banking, uh, banks would try to gang up on, on upstart new rivals by piling up their notes and staging runs to p- force them out of business. These were called note raids. And the option clause developed as a way for banks to, p- to, to safeguard themselves against raids by rival banks. In other words, they never did use these clauses to to protect themselves against runs from their own customers. They never had to. In principle, though, the clauses would have been a a useful device in case there was a genuine panic. It's just that it never actually happened. It seems to me that the problem with that is an insurance system. And, and of course, uh, there are many such privately um, contractual arrangements throughout our economy where your ability to access your property could be limited in return for, say, more security. So it's, I understand the, the possibility of that. But if a bank was profligate and made bad loans, um, the which could lead to the panic, then the likelihood that the assets would cover the costs, of course, is smaller than it might otherwise be. So that we can imagine situations where that recourse would not, without that recourse of delay, there there could be a, there could be a major problem. Ah, but this is the beauty of the optional clause. If it's designed right uh, with the right rate of interest, and and papers have been written about this, uh, it's a perfectly incentive-compatible arrangement by which what I I specifically mean is if the only time it would pay for a bank to invoke the option clause instead of winding up would be, that is, instead of simply going bankrupt, would be if, in fact, it was solvent, it didn't have a lot of bad loans, people were panicking even though uh, nothing was wrong. In other words, the run could have pure panic. They could have imperfect information, right? That's and right. Just- and in that case, it pays for the bank to invoke the option clause and pay the high rate of interest involved. If, on the other hand, a bank has been profligate and has made a lot of bad loans and really is insolvent or on the road to insolvency, it doesn't pay to invoke the clause you simply shut down. So it's, it's, a, it's an incentive-compatible arrangement, 
and uh, that's why uh, it, it it didn't produce uh, any sort of hazard to have it there. But nevertheless, it was outlawed because some people opposed it. But that that shutdown would be a disaster for the for the the depositors. I'm just I'm wondering. Oh, yeah, it would be very bad if you do business with a bank that's no good as a depositor or a note holder under free banking. Uh, if your bank fails, you're going to take some losses. Now that that's not necessarily true because there could be a takeover, as there is often today, a merger, whatever, and these things would be easier in a less regulated system. These these resolutions uh, than they than they often are at present. Um, so, but but at the bottom line, Russ is yes, uh, in in a perfectly free banking system, as a bank customer who keeps money at a particular bank, you face a positive probability, it might be very small, of losing your money, uh, or at least a, a, a part of it, and that's part of the reality of free banking. But every government scheme for, for trying to do away with that aspect yes, of yeah. banking has, has uh, ultimately served to uh, give rise to uh, a, a less less safe banking system where it's true that depositors as such don't face losses, but then taxpayers face them instead, and those losses become greater. Right. So there's no well, they real They become gain. systemic rather than localized. Yeah, well. so the, the idea that you know the only good banking system is a system where bank customers, the holders of bank liabilities, never have to worry about taking losses... That idea is just a fundamentally rotten idea. It's a nice and fantasy. It's, it's, it's a nice it's a delusion, fantasy, I guess. But attempts to implement that fantasy, unfortunately, result in a very real uh, suffering and, and uh, welfare losses in the long run. But just to make sure I understand it, in a, in a free banking system that we've observed, say, in the real world, say in Scotland – and it sounds like we're talking about the period 1820 to 1845. Is that roughly? Uh, well, or, or earlier. You could you could date it back to even uh, the the, the mid uh, 18th century, which would include uh, a brief period when the option clause was uh, still legal. But in that world, what is restraining um, the bank from opportuni- opportunistic behavior? Is it is it simply the uh, loss of reputation and future ability to run the bank, or is there well, anything else? It's the loss of their capital. It should be mentioned that a lot of Scottish banks, though not all of them, not the biggest ones, but many had unlimited liabilities, so their shareholders' uh, personal wealth was exposed. The owners, uh, proprietors' personal wealth. Well, if there were others, the very big ones that were not limited liability, so it wasn't an essential component of the success of Scottish banking, but they all had lots of capital. Uh, we, don't, we don't realize how much bank capital banks used to have. Uh, you know, it was common before the establishment of the Fed for banks to have, you know, capital that was 30% of their liabilities. Uh, the, the establishment of central banking tends to eat away at bank capital, because it's a substitute in the eyes of depositors. If you have a lender of sure. last resort, you don't need the capital. The establishment of deposit insurance has had the same effect, and that's why bank capital has to be regulated today, because we've gotten rid of all the natural incentives for bankers to have capital and for depositors to insist that they do. So um, but, uh, the reason Scottish banks and other free banks don't 
uh, act irresponsibly is because the owners of the banks have a lot at stake and they don't want to lose it. So, so why did uh, why did why do we think, if we have any information on it, that the Scottish uh, I'll call it an experiment? Uh, why was it killed? What happened in 1845 that put an end to it? What happened was the rather careless extension of uh, legislation initially adopted for England to Scotland um, based on the assumption that what was good for England was necessarily good for Scotland as well. Uh, And uh, even in England, the legislation, which was Peel's Act, uh, was of dubious uh, value. The England, of course, had a central bank capable of leading the country as a whole in an excessive uh, expansion or contraction of of money and credit. And uh, observing the instability of the the English system uh, uh, and following a considerable debate on the subject, it was concluded that uh, the way to uh, limit this instability was to subject the currency component of the money stock to very strict limits. This was at a time where the role of deposits as money wasn't adequately appreciated. Well, uh, the way they practically implemented this conclusion was to, first of all, try to impose strict limits on the note issue of the Bank of England. But at the same time, they thought, well, we have to impose limits on the other banks. So they capped their note issues with and made them subject to 100% marginal reserve requirements. These were the other English banks at the time that could also issue notes. That that ended up giving the Bank of England ultimately a complete monopoly of currency, and it didn't solve the problem because you had Bank of England deposits that could equally serve as reserves for other banks. In the meantime, the Scottish banks were subject to the same uh, cap on their note issues, and that's why today there are essentially only two Scottish banks of issue uh, whose notes outstanding, at least until the recent crisis, I haven't checked since, uh, have still been at the upper limits set by Peel's Act. So is the ideal in your mind, uh, as you point out, I mean, it's a, it's a deep point because it, it applies to so many different areas, right? There's a chance you'll lose your money. So private banks, oh, that sounds horrible. Of course, there's a chance there'll be a financial crisis under centralized control, which we've had a number of them now. Uh, is the ideal in your mind a a decentralized uh, both banking system and money supply? Mm-hmm. Well, yes. Yes. And in such a world, what do we know, if anything, about what business cycles or inflation would look like? Right. So there's two things at stake here. One is what sort of banks do we want to have? And I've argued that a safe bank uh, – that you ultimately want – or need to have a banking system where banks can fail and customers take losses when their banks fail. The reason for that is because if you don't do that, then you'll end up with only lousy banks eventually, or a very strong tendency for there to be only lousy banks, and that's what we've got today. Um, But the macroeconomic question is also important. How is the money supply going to behave? I want to step, and, and will there be fewer or more business cycles, I want to step back a bit and say that the the ultimate reason for studying and talking about free banking 
isn't because we 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 just like freedom and we want to advocate free this free that. Um, uh, I, I don't come from this from a, a libertarian perspective. What what interests me is the theory. How do banking systems work? What does regulation do? What do central banks do? And um, I believe, and other free bankers believe, that you can't answer those questions unless you have a theory of free banking that you've developed. You work in trade, right? A you talk bit. about the theory of a free trade, yeah, but you know, you know the theory of free trade. So, so where's their country with perfect, complete free trade? Uh, there isn't one. Okay. But we still write we have an about idea, it. right, of what it it's might look like. It's an idea, like. right? Yep. And uh, our understanding of what tariffs do comes from having uh, theorized about free trade. We have free trade models, free trade theory. Most monetary economists, when they talk about central banks doing this and doing that, literally don't know what they're talking about. When they say this, and when you have a central bank, it controls the money growth, it controls, because they don't have a, a, a conception of what, what a free banking system looks like. You can only say what a central bank is doing if you have this, this uh, underlying notion of what the banking system looks like before the central bank gets created. And our monetary theorists, for the most part, don't know it. They don't know. So they have all these, frankly, wrong ideas about what it is that central banks accomplish and what it is they, they really don't accomplish and what harm they do. Anyway. It is the, it is the default model. There, there's no alternative in most people's minds, I think, to the government issuing currency and, then, right, and right. regulating the banks the way they do. But many great scholars um, – Milton Friedman being the most obvious one, uh, saw a role for central banks, central banking, a Federal Reserve, and spent their political economy time trying to argue for, say, a monetary rule of, of a fixed growth rate in the money supply or in high-powered money, and either out of expediency because, well, it's hard to get rid of it or because they believe that, that such a system was superior to the, a free banking system. So – React to their their viewpoint, either on expedient or theoretical grounds. What would be the argument uh, for how? And let me let me broaden the question as if it's not broad enough. Um, but you know, I think until about about six months ago, most people would say that we've kind of got the hang of this central bank thing. We've had twenty five years of or so of of really pretty much steady growth, really unparalleled in in uh, modern. Modern history, we had two small recessions in '91 and, and 2001, but they were historically a very modest. Not not to deny the hardship that the people who suffered from unemployment, but economy wide, they were relatively small. And one could argue that that we have we've really gotten the hang of this. Now the current mess, it's not clear it indicts that viewpoint. It may, and I know there are people who say it does, but why? Give me the counterpoint to to those who would argue that you know really central banks are really necessary. They're better than this dis, disoriented, decentralized, disorganized, and decentralized system in terms of inflation and growth. Because look how well we've done historically. Well, well, first of all, the statement presumes some knowledge of what a decentralized system would do, and as as uh, uh, summarized, it's wrong. That is the the performance of central banks at best, at their best, 
which is to say the way they performed uh, before the current crisis for perhaps a decade, was, was, uh, was not so great. Inflation rates were generally above 2%, uh, sometimes well above, and there were, uh, there were uh, uh, cycles. Now, it, you could say that the, country, the cycles were moderate, and they were, uh, but after all, to pick on a, a 10-year interval, or a, an interval of not much more than 10 years, and say, well, look how stable everything is, and to ignore the, 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 the many decades uh, in which we have had central banks where they have screwed things up, I think is, uh, is you know, it's like just picking the sample period. Well, so we had the, to figure it out. We had to, we had to learn, and now we've mastered it. Well, of course, yeah. the current situation is slight problem for that explanation. <laughs> well, it was a premature conclusion because I think the current situation proves that it was wrong. I'm I'm of the camp that thinks the Fed played a very important part in pumping up the housing bubble, and and I've argued so in in, in a, a couple places, and I think the evidence is pretty clear that uh, they blew it. And so uh, what looked like a period of stability or part of a period of stability and of central bank success uh, really wasn't. It was just well, setting the stage for another uh, uh, cycle. Yeah, let me just – I'll make a comment on that, and then I want to go back to this question of free banking's alternative as an alternative. But you know, what's interesting, of course, is that it's inevitably the rule of, of human beings rather than the rule of law. It's inevitably discretion rather than rules. And Greenspan in one worried about 9-11 and worried about the tech uh, crisis, was very eager to avert a recession and evidently went too far. And similarly, Bernanke, going back to March of, of this past year when deciding to bail out or, or, or salvage Bear Stearns the way he did, of course, did that in the name of saving the financial system. And, of course, it did not save it and it may have even hastened it. But so what, what would be the – as you point out, you need to have an alternative. So an alternative theory. What's the alternative theory of what business cycles and inflation would look like in a free banking world, and why would it be better than what we have now? Okay. So um, first of all, uh, the, the, you can't evaluate the monetary and macro performance of a free banking system without specifying what the monetary standard is, because in principle, free banking can be uh, – you can have free banking with any standard. So you can have it on a gold standard, a silver standard. You could have a, a fiat dollar free banking system too, for that matter, um, where you still have uh, the basic money of the economy uh, created by uh, a central bank. So in that case, the free, free banking conceived that way doesn't, doesn't specify any particular pattern for the total money supply. But what... Uh, I and others have pointed out is if you had free banking today, you wouldn't need, wouldn't need to have an activist Fed because there's no component of the money supply that the banks, the private banks, can't supply adequate amounts of without the Fed's butting in. So you Ex- could explain do, that. Well, the, the only thing you see, the Fed monopolizes paper currency and bank reserves, but of the public holdings of money, they monopolize only currency. And as long as that's true, and as long as people continue to need currency, which they do less and less, but they still need it, the Fed's control of that one component of money uh, is what gives it ultimate leverage over the the whole stock. Well, uh, it's the the original basis for its uh, leverage. And you can't abolish the Fed without 
or, or shut out, shut down its operations entirely without risking there being a mismatch of the quantity of currency relative to demand, because no one else makes currency, paper currency. But if you allowed banks complete freedom, you could shut the Fed's operations down by freezing the monetary base. You just freeze it. You wouldn't get rid of it. You just have a fixed stock of reserves. So just leave the, the total number of green pieces of paper with dead presidents on them and the little coins. Just keep that stock constant. Right. And actually, ideally, what you'd want to do is you, you'd have to have an adjustment for currency flowing in from abroad and for currency being redeposited in the banks. What you really want to freeze is the supply of bank reserves. And, uh, and, and uh, eventually, though, imagine that the system has evolved where there are no more green pieces of paper in circulation. There's just uh, the Fed liabilities in the form of reserve credits for banks. I don't, uh, I don't understand that. Try to explain that again. Well, the, the Fed's liabilities now take two forms. There's actual uh, Federal Reserve notes in circulation. That's like my $1 half, bill. Yeah, about half of, of which are abroad. And then the rest of the monetary base is banks' reserve credits. These what is are that? claims against the Fed on the Fed's books. What does that mean? Banks, think of the Fed as the banker's bank. They okay. have deposits at the Fed. So I'm a bank, uh, and I've, got, I've put money at the bank as required by law to yeah. keep a minimum reserve. That's right, and that's just a deposit entry at the Fed. Is that going to disappear under free banking? No, no. We're going to keep a... We're going to freeze the total of those okay. deposit all credits, right. and we don't. Well, let's subtract from the green currency because that could all eventually be replaced by free bank currency. When you have a frozen stock of reserves, and the banks can supply all the paper currency that people need on their own, then uh, that frozen base won't necessarily be a problem, and that is. The changing monetary needs of the public can be accommodated by the private financial system and even with a frozen fixed stock of bank reserves. Would and there it, would there be a fall if we were if productivity was positive, would there be a falling price? There level? would there would if productivity was positive, and here we're getting into the, the less than zero argument. Um, there there if you if the public if the public wants to accumulate more money and they stop spending as a result, right? They, temp- they, 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 they don't draw as many checks. They don't pass on their banknotes. In that circumstance, right. And so you have a decline in the velocity of money. Mm-hmm. In that circumstance, actually, there would be a tendency for the banks to actually issue more money, to make right. more loans. And the reason they can do that is because that their demand for reserves is a function of the flow of payments sure. through the clearing system. So with that, when that flow goes down, uh, it tends to be accompanied by uh, uh, the, it, the banks can, it can bring it back up again by, by loaning more. And, uh, and so changes in velocity get offset by changes in the private money stock. And that's something I show in my theory of free banking, my first book. But um, here's my I'm, I'm a little yeah. bit confused and let's so let's let me summarize where we are and help our listeners as well. It, I want to get an idea of what a free banking system would do with respect to business cycles and inflation. Right. And I'm I'm confused why there's a Fed at all in in your story. Are we going to keep the Fed? 
Only if we want to preserve the present dollar and don't want to talk about restoring a gold standard or anything else. Because of the right? difficulties of making a transition? That's right. That's right. Because when you, we can talk about free banking on a gold basis, uh, and it's useful to talk about it for certain purposes, and it might be worth contemplating a reform in that direction. But we can also talk about what it would mean to have free banking with the existing fiat dollar, paper dollar, what could we do to the Fed then? What would the Fed's role be? And and what I've argued and others have argued as well is that the Fed could be nothing more than a than a, a kind of a, uh, a a maintenance institution for maintaining a fixed stock of bank reserves. It wouldn't need to have discretionary powers to add to or subtract from those reserves. We wouldn't need to rely on it for actual paper notes, and we it would maintain the the existing standard dollar, but it would not need to engage in monetary policy in the usually understood sense. So we're going to strip it of its open market operations. Yes, we're going to shut that down, shut the discount window, because uh, everything that needs to be done in the way of monetary accommodation can be, can done. be done by the private sector. And we're going to get rid of the FDIC. No need for them. And we're going to... What else are we going to get rid of? You uh, could privatize the Fed clearing system so long as the you know you're maintaining the actual books uh, such that the stock of reserves doesn't isn't affected by that privatization. So what have we done? We've allowed banks to uh, what have we freed up in this story? We banks allowing, are going to issue currency of their own if they want. We're get, that's right. We're going to get rid of the reserve requirements so that the reserve ratios can be flexible. That's crucial. Uh, and so now, in principle, we have a banking system that can supply more money, even though the supply of reserves is fixed. They can issue notes. They can expand their deposit credits, private deposit credits, in response to greater public needs for those things. And that they is, can go bankrupt, and they can... Or they can also go bankrupt, right. From the, monet, from the macro point of view, though, we want to know how the whole system's going to behave. So go ahead. And, and so uh, the bankruptcy just means that market shares are going to change, right? And so let's abstract from that and ask how the total money supply adjusts in that case. And in principle, the way it can adjust is if people spend less of any bank's liabilities, that bank can afford to issue more. In my first book, I make an, a, a metaphor where you think about the, the, the spending of a bank's liabilities as making a flow or a stream that flows into the clearing system and eventually leads to uh, demands for settlement and, and the bank has to fork over scarce reserves. Now, along that stream, there are little puddles uh, those are puddles of demand. When demand for the bank's uh, money grows, people absorb more by holding on to the uh, notes. If it's a or, good store of value. Or that's, well, or just because they want to have a, a more of a precautionary balance, yep. and we know money demand fluctuates, that bank can inject more into that stream because it's not going to, that additional money isn't going to make its way through the clearing system or translate into more reserve losses. Uh, the, the, think of an extreme case, Russ, where you have a bank account used to get deposits and make and, and then spend uh, write checks at a certain rate every week, right? Mm -hmm. And now you suddenly decide, I'm not going to write any checks anymore. Right? Now think of a bank where nobody writes checks for a while. 
Right. In fact, let's assume they just all stop writing checks forever. In that case, that bank could expand forever because no one's ever writing a check, so it's never going to lose a dollar of reserves. Now, if that's, that's a limit. We don't face that in reality. But the general idea that how much a bank can issue when it's not subject to reserve requirements and can supply currency as well as deposits depends on how, how rapidly people are spending its money is, is easily illustrated this way. So what do you think? Uh, would we have a business cycle? Ah, well... To the extent, right, I mean, there are lots of theories of the business cycle and lots of things that could be said to contribute. But one of the things I think that everyone agrees contributes to business cycles today is the uh, 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 is swings in demand for goods or aggregate demand, right? If you have too much spending going on, that is, uh, let's say the rate of growth of spending is, is too high, that can contribute to a bubble especially if, it, uh, if the spending goes into particular markets like the housing market. If you have a collapse of spending or a, a real decline in the growth rate that people are accustomed to, you can get a recession, a la Great Depression, an extreme case. So that maintaining a fairly stable level of spending is very important for dampening the business cycle. How do you do that? Well, what you do is you want to make sure the money stock grows when velocity of money goes down and shrinks when velocity goes up. Well, that's just what happens in a free banking system. And so it has its automatic tendency to dampen the business cycle. Now, the Taylor Rule, which we've talked about here uh, in the past, was thought to do the same thing, right? When there were, If the economy was slowing down, you'd inject more money into it and vice versa. Why do you think uh, that has failed? The problem with the Taylor or, Rule... Or any other, any other form yeah, of monetary A lot rule. of these rules, including the, table, the Taylor Rule, uh, look at the price level as a proximate signal of whether there's uh, too, too much money or too little. And this can be very, very misleading. Notice what I said was necessary for dampening the cycle was stability of total spending not stability of the price level per se. Now, those things turn out to be, you know, more or less equivalent if you hold the productivity of the economy or output, but especially the productivity of the economy constant, right? So think of the equation of exchange, MV equals PY, right? If we're stabilizing... That's, for those of you uh, taking notes at home without a program, that's uh, M is the amount of money, V is how right. fast it turns over, P is the average price level, and Y is output, correct? Excellent. Very I good. remember something. I'm so glad. <laughs> so, Irving so, Fisher would be proud. Right. So um, my argument is, and it's also an argument uh, uh, shared by many, many uh, non-free bankers, is what you really want for the economy to be stable is to stabilize total spending, which is P times Y, or equivalently M times C. And that's what you do if you have M grow just to offset falling V, and vice versa. Now, um, notice that, though, that if you stabilize MV, you're stabilizing PY, but you're, not you're only stabilizing P itself if Y is, its, is, is itself unchanging, output. Now, what if you have a change in output due to uh, productivity improvements? Which, which you hope for. Yes. You hope for all the time. Right. In that case, if all you want to do is stabilize spending so that changes in total spending aren't 
destabilizing activity, then you would want the price level to fall in response to that increase in productivity and to rise if productivity suffered a setback. Mm -hmm. And so thinking of this in terms of supply and demand or aggregate supply and demand, and now, of course, (laughs) Russ, I'm sorry, I, I hope you don't need to try to describe the, the chart to me, but for the listeners who understand what these graphs look like, what you want to do is stabilize the aggregate demand schedule. Don't let that thing bounce around. Uh, but if the aggregate supply schedule changes, uh, especially the long-run value, well, that's fine. You let that translate into changing prices. Because that's that could be productivity, say. That's productivity, and the point is, and a lot of zero inflation types, including some monitors, don't get this. If your general the, the the price levels we're talking about here are output price levels, it's the prices of finished goods that go into these measures for the most part. Well, if um, if you have an improvement in productivity, then what you've really got is a change in the price or value of output relative to input. You get more output for any given input. So you've got a relative price, a big one that's got to change. It's the relative price of output to input. You 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 either have to inflate if you stabilize the output price level, you've got to in, inflate input prices. It's better, I argue, that the output price level should just be allowed to uh, decline if productivity is improving. So and that's the argument of less than zero. So which is a monograph um yeah. you've written yeah. which we'll put a link up to. Uh what the political economy of this is um, the government likes having control of the money supply. Um, one argument would be, well, that's because you're wrong, George. This private free banking system would be a disaster, and we need the government's hand on the tiller to stabilize things. Now, what's fascinating, of course, is that the government's hand on the tiller really doesn't look so good in in practice. You could, of course – justify it because of external events or things that are outside the money supply, outside the monetary authority as a way of salvaging it. But we we do appear to be at a time where, uh, as we were in in the 30s, where a lot of faith in some institutions is being shaken, not always the right institutions, but some institutions are looking uh, less attractive than they once did. Um, What do you think the political economy of this is? Is there any if your views are correct, is there any hope that a uh, government set of policymakers would move in that direction? They they always seem to move in the opposite direction. They want to move in the direction of insurance guarantee and no risk, um, which appears to be the direction they're moving. Of course, it can't be done, as you say, but at least it looks like it's being done. And the alternative view, which is to allow competition to restrain uh, imperfect behavior, is uh, harder to sell. Or is there something more sinister going on? Is there some uh, private benefits that that politicians get from controlling the money supply that is uh, that I'm that I'm missing? Well, I I see is it just it a lack of faith, or is it a lack of, uh, or is there something more uh, straightforward in terms of public choice issues? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I think most people sincerely believe that uh, you have to have government control of the monetary system or all hell would break loose. 
and um, and that's why, to that extent, that that's uh, what's propping up the existing system. I think it's really worthwhile to be arguing for alternatives because the existing system is supported by misunderstanding of, of theory, of, of history, and so on. However, it also has to be said that that there are many interests at stake that uh, uh, many of, of which would uh, suffer from a move towards free banking. Central banking politicizes the money supply, uh, to, uh, and by doing so, it uh, it creates a circumstance where competing interest groups lobby for inflation or deflation, and uh, uh, and for and perhaps even against uh, uh, various uh, supposedly stabilizing uh, policies. And as a result of this, uh, you have, for example, uh, pressure to inflate. There's always going to be pressure to inflate from certain groups, uh, including uh, uh, debtors who see the value of their debts in some cases decline. So uh, once you've politicized things, you've you've made it harder to go back to a system that cannot grant the the interest groups benefiting from the present policies uh, the, the 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 favors that they're getting. And they're going to not be happy by a move to a system that might even promote some deflation, for example. Your latest book is called Good Money, and it's the story of an historical episode where privately issued money was widely widely circulated and trusted and worked out just fine, correct? Mm, yeah, give us it a worked thumbnail. out much better than what the government had been Supplying give, anyway. us, give us a little bit of a description of that historical episode and uh, what created it and why did it end. So um, this is a case where we're no longer talking about banks, uh, which were uh, only be starting to become important in England at the time. The Bank of England existed, but uh, the number of other banks in the late 18th century, which is the period my book concerns, was uh, was relatively small. And money in those days, for the vast majority of people, consisted of coins. And for all but the relatively well-to-do, uh, it consisted of silver and copper coins. So you have the mass of payments uh, d- uh, depending on the availability of those smaller value uh, coins. Well, okay, you also have the Industrial Revolution happening, of course, and that revolution is rapidly increasing the need for uh, these copper and silver coins by increasing the number of transactions that, that uh, for which they alone are, are adequate, including retail payments and wage payments. Now, <laughs> now let's talk about supply. The Royal Mint, which was, of course, the agency charged with making coins and and given uh, monopoly powers to do so, uh, was essentially producing no silver coins in the last quarter of the 18th century and practically no copper coins. In other words, you have growing demand and close to zero output. (laughs) And the result is a change shortage, a coin shortage, a money shortage, that already serious at the middle of the century became extremely severe by the last decades of the of the uh, 18th century. So much so that it really threatened to to undo 
uh, a, a big part of the process of industrialization that was taking place by confronting uh, the industrialists with uh, an inability to pay their workers and merchants with an inability to make change to accomplish the sale of goods. Um, so what happened? Well, what happened is um, the... Necessity uh, is the mother of invention. Yes, necessity is the mother of invention, and a couple entrepreneurs, uh, both of whom happen to have interests in uh, copper mining, uh, and who were thereby encouraged by their involvement in copper mining, tried to persuade the government, first of all, to, to do something about the coinage, mainly by uh, uh, commissioning vast new uh, uh, production of coin, copper coin, um, which they offered to help it to do by, by creating uh, new mints uh, that would uh, handle the coinage uh, instead of the royal mint, which for various reasons uh, wasn't up to it. When their proposals fell on deaf ears, they decided to take matters in their own hands. It was actually Thomas Williams, one of these entrepreneurs, who uh, set, went ahead, set up a mint, and started issuing very substantial amounts of copper coin, uh, bearing his own copper mines uh, uh, trademark. Not his face, just just a trademark. Oh, actually, uh, uh, no. He did not put his own face on the coins. The later issuers, including uh, uh, John Wilkinson, would famously uh, have their own busts on mm -hmm. the coins they issued as if they were so many sovereigns. Yep. And uh, uh, but um, but the interesting thing about these coins is that first of all they didn't run into the, the their makers didn't run into the problems that the royal mint ran into uh, with regard to aggressive counterfeiting and also supply distribution problems that were the, among the reasons why they kept, gave up coining copper in the first place. Their coins initially were actually heavier than royal mint uh, equivalents. They were beautifully engraved, and that's one reason why they defeated counterfeiting. They were redeemable on demand, and that helped maintain uh, the uh, balance of supply and demand and avoided uh, shortages as well as surpluses. They were, in all respects, superior money to anything the Royal Mint had produced at that time. And before long, there were 20 different mints uh, producing custom-made coins for about 200 different issuers around the country. And they solved the, the shortage. And why did it come to an end? Their existence. It, it came to an end. First of all, there was a there were there were there were two, as it were, acts to the private coinage uh, drama. The first ended uh, more or less after 1797, when uh, in a in a reaction to uh, uh, the suspension of the Bank of England, the government finally decided to commission new copper coins. And they had Matthew Boulton, one of the entrepreneurs I referred to, make those coins at the mint he'd set up for that purpose 10 years before, a gigantic steam-powered mint. So it looked like the government was getting its act together with coinage, or at least trying to supply official coins uh, when, uh, 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 after not having done so for some time. However, the new coins that it commissioned didn't solve the problem because it had this, the, 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 the lack of competition uh, and other uh, administrative arrangements of the Royal Mint carried over from the past 
caused these coins also to not satisfy demand, to pile up in certain places and, and, and never return to where they were needed and so on. So there were new shortages, and another outbreak of private coinage began uh, after 1810. Well, in that episode, uh, the, the coins that were issued included silver coins, because the Bank of England in the meantime had issued its own coins, so others thought, well, it's a private firm, we can do this too. And finally, a guy issued gold coins, private gold coins, not very many. That last, <laughs> that last step finally got the government to say, no, this is too much of an encroachment of our prerogative of coinage. It's a threat to our sovereignty. The Royal Mint by this time had long recognized that it was in deep trouble because it was clear that not only the copper coinage, but perhaps all coinage would now be privatized, leaving it with no excuse for existing. So they, too, uh, were aggressive in fighting for their uh, uh, prerogative to be restored. And uh, what ultimately happened is the private coinage was uh, declared illegal. Let's, well, we're almost out of time. I'd like you to say something about a, a mysterious concept that I think most people have heard of but don't fully understand, which is Gresham's Law and the idea that, quote, bad money drives out good and why that didn't happen during this episode. Well, uh, you know, Gresham's Law, right, it's attributed to Thomas Gresham, who was an Elizabethan uh, financier, uh, although it goes back to ancient times. But if you look at statements of this law throughout history, except some modern ones by economists who clearly don't understand the proper context for it, they all refer to situations where there was no private coinage, no free choice in coinage, but instead a government that, having monopolized coinage, decided that it was going to basically dilute the quality of its coins and uh, try to fob off on the public new coins that declared themselves to be worth the same as some previous coins, but were in distinctly inferior, usually because they had less precious metal in them. And these governments would pass laws, more or less uh, like uh, what we call legal tender laws, that would punish people one way or the other if they tried to discriminate between the, the new coins, which were, let's say, bad money, and the old coins, which we'll call good money. Well, when that happens, the unintended consequence is that only the bad money gets used, circulated, and the good money tends to get hoarded. Melted uh, and, down or safe. And melted yeah. down uh, or otherwise it disappears from circulation. It makes perfect sense, right? So if you go to a liquor store and you've got a bad coin and a good coin, each of them says $1, let's say, or one ounce, and there's a, and there's, uh, a person who has uh, a bottle of liquor to sell, the smart thing to do in this situation is price that bottle as if you're going to be paid in a bad coin. Because otherwise, if you do get paid in the bad you coin money, yeah. and you priced it in terms of good money, you're taking a, an unnecessary loss. If you're the buyer, you wouldn't therefore pay anything but bad money. So good money disappears. Okay. Uh, in a free market, there's no tendency for that to happen at all because the merchant can say, look, this is my bottle. It's one I want one ounce, and I mean by that an ounce of good money. And it is a, a one-ounce coin that's really a one-ounce gold coin. 
if you offer me anything else, I'll either refuse it or I'll have to charge you more, which I have a right to do because there's no legal tender laws. If we, if we take the free market understanding and apply it to uh, the concept of private coinage, we see that there's no Gresham's law tendency, based tendency for mints that produce inferior coins to outcompete mints that produce uh, good coins that are up to an established standard. Just the opposite prevails. And so under competition, good money drives bad money up. Yeah, I mean, I've always found that, mis- yeah, that, that would seem to be the case. Um, yeah, but if you have a government with legal tender law, in France, for example, and we had similar laws during the U.S. Revolution, but during the French Revolution, at what point, having issued paper assignats that were supposed to be equivalent to, to uh, gold coins, um, people, of course, were not treating them as the same, yeah. just as you would expect. The government actually made it illegal for any merchant to inquire which sort of money he was going to be paid uh, before making a deal. Yeah, pay in well, a sealed envelope. Uh, yeah, yeah. He couldn't simple, open it until he left the store with the liquor, yeah. That's right, a simple... <laughs> Prisoner's dilemma model will tell you what the equilibrium outcome yeah, of that's going to be. So attractive. Bad money. Yeah. Well, my guest today has been George Selgin of West Virginia University. He's the author of Good Money and Less Than Zero. George, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Oh, thank you, Ross. It's been a pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.